Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name is Josh Miles. I'm a designer, principal, and brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Today on the podcast, I catch up with the founder and podcast host, Stefan Engo. Stefan hosts the show Well Made, and in today's conversation, we talk about cardboard, logistics, Charles and Ray Eames, and we get a little bit existential. So please, without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Stefan Ango. All right, guys, today we have all the way from Los Angeles, the host of the Well-Made Podcast and Big Kahuna, as he says on Twitter, of Lumi, Stefan Ango. Stefan, welcome to Obsessed with Design. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, I think you guys had reached out to us after you noticed uh, Aaron Draplin made an appearance on our show. And of course, he was on uh, your show as well, the Well-Made Podcast, that is. And uh, I think your email said, hey, we have a similar taste. So maybe it'd be fun for us to chat on your show. So I appreciated you guys shooting us an email. Sure. Yeah, we're, you know, I'm a big fan of podcasts in general. And uh, and so, you know, yours seem like perfect fit. We're designing nerds talking about design stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and what better to talk about on audio than a visual subject? That's the challenge of the whole medium. <laughs> exactly. Well, cool. Yeah. I have people all the time say, well, why did you do this? Why are you, why are you doing a podcast? What made you think of that? And my, my first response is almost always, well, I, I listen to podcasts and I, I like the medium. So it's, it's something that was just supernatural for me. So I'm, I'm curious with you guys when it comes to the well-made show, like, um, what your inspiration was or how you got started with the podcast yourself. It's completely self-serving. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's just an excuse for me to talk to people that I admire really. <laughs> and I get, I get a few of my friends that I've happened to bump into, um, over the years through events and things that we do in the design industry, uh, or, or entrepreneurial friends that I have. And I use those guys to try and get more famous people to do the podcast. That's how it works. Yeah. Likewise. I'd, I'd love to <laughs> pretend that, uh, if I just called Michael Beirut up at his desk or, you know, Aaron Draplin for that matter, that they would still take my call and chat with me for a minute, but it's a great excuse to have uh, an hour long conversation with awesome people and kind of even with, even with friends, you know, the, they're, I would say it's about half and half. Um, half of them are people that I know well and, and half are people that you know, we might have bumped into each other here or there, but haven't really had a conversation. And I always love talking to, to my friends and having an excuse to talk about things that are a little bit more uh, serious. I don't know, when you're just talking with friends, you tend to fall into a little bit of small talk or catching up on personal things. And I don't always get a chance to ask them the hard hitting questions and opinions and, uh, you know, problems that they've faced in a, in a more serious way. So I think it's a, it's a fun opportunity. Yeah. Here in Indianapolis, uh, last week, as of this recording, it'll be a couple of weeks by the time this goes live, but we were celebrating the 25th anniversary of the local AIGA chapter. 
And mm. uh, I looked over at one point and three guys who I had interviewed for the show were all standing around talking to each other. <laughs> I thought that's pretty cool. But like to your point, I had like maybe two minutes of conversation with each of them at the show. And that was a laid back, you know, opportunity to chat and do whatever where we get 45 minutes or more with our guests on the show. So it is, it is a cool time to catch up even when it is local peeps. Yeah. The thing that I try to do is there are so many great podcasts that go into people's like origin stories um, that I tell my listeners, just go listen to those. Those are great. Um, there's a lot of them out there. They're, they're really good. Or there's, you know, the great discontent. I love those guys and they do just a great job um, in the written medium of going through people's background. But so I try to focus more on nitty gritty, just practical, uh, advice or philosophy about design where, where we can try and skip past the, like the origin story, even though that stuff is usually incredibly interesting. But, you know, I had Tobias Frere Jones on the show, who is one of my heroes in typography and, you could literally, I mean, I, you could do a 12 hour, you could do an entire series of podcasts just about like every single typeface that he's designed and, and how he got involved in it. And his family is fascinating. And so there's so much there. And a lot of that stuff has been covered in other places that um, sometimes I feel like it gets in the way of whatever uh, those people are really thinking about right now. So I, I try to focus a little bit more on that side of things. Cool. Well, um, I actually just listened to that episode, uh, earlier today as I was oh, good. preparing for our conversation. I was like, oh, I want to get it, get a feel for what your show's about because prior to you guys reaching out, I mean, there's, there's so many new podcasts popping up all the time, but I hadn't come across yours yet. So, um, and that actually sent me down a rabbit hole because, you know, on iTunes, you get the people who listen to this show also subscribe to the following. So I was like, Oh, I don't, I don't know any of these shows. So there was this whole new rabbit hole of, uh, of audio goodies that I, that I found there. So I guess along the lines of what you were talking about, we are one of those shows who likes to talk about origin stories and whatnot. So maybe you could tell us a little bit of, of your origin story. And then I'm, I'm curious to hear how, how Lumi came to be as well. Sure. Well, uh, my origin story is I was born in Paris, France. My dad is French and my mom is from California, but I actually grew up there until I graduated from high school. And it doesn't sound like it because my mom is a, is a, is an American and she's an English teacher in France. And, uh, now I've been living here in the States for, uh, 14 years. So I've ironed out all the like remaining weird things that I, that I used to say, but, um, so that's, <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, I, I never really had an accent, but I, and I still to this day, uh, will use weird turns of phrases that are not proper English because I, I don't know, for some reason my brain will go into French mode. And I was just there for the past week visiting my family. So if I fall back into that, you'll know why. Um, so <laughs> I'm but, curious to see what that is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, it's just putting words in, in the wrong order or for a long time, I, uh, had, there were words that I had only read and never pronounced. Um, and you know, as much as people make fun of or, or, or complain about the French language having a lot of silent letters. They're all 
predictable. So if you if you know mm -hmm. French mm -hmm. and know how to pronounce French, if you look at a word, you can pretty much pronounce it. Whereas in English, you have a lot of words that uh, you can pronounce many different ways, like produce and produce. The same way do you spell it, but depending on the context, <laughs> you pronounce it differently and there's no accent or anything that tells you what to do. So there are a lot of those types of things that I got caught up on. But yeah, so I, I you know, I went to, to school in, in France and I thought for the longest time I would become a biologist. I was really interested in uh, evolutionary biology and zoology and um and I still, you know, think that that would have been a fascinating career. I went to, um, I, I got my bachelor's degree in biology, but that entire time my mom is an artist and I always had that kind of side of me that was, um, involved in, um, photography and web design and all kinds of little hobbies that were more artistic. Um, one of the things that I really attribute my pursuit of design to in the early days was um, designing skins. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a thing uh, called skins. They were like themes for applications. Mm -hmm. uh, like you, there was one particular that I was a big fan of, of working on, which was um, Winamp, which was this like kind of precursor to iTunes oh, yeah. um, on Windows back in the late 90s. And, uh, early two thousands. And so I, you, what you would do is create like little UIs and interfaces on top of that. And they would become like a little player, uh, that you could customize. And I had a lot of fun doing that. And I didn't know at the time that that was UI design. I was just doing it cause I wanted to make something cool on my computer, but I was doing UI design and that's something that I do a lot of now, but I didn't realize it was a profession. I didn't realize that you could have a job designing things until much later. I was in, <laughs> yeah. You're just doing cool stuff with, with the Photoshop. Yeah. I, I learned Photoshop, uh, you know, just because it was fun and it, you know, I was, a, I was a nerd and, uh, that, you know, I, I liked to play around with things on, on the computer and, you know, one thing led to another. And I remember that, I was in, I was in college and I went to China, uh, just, uh, traveling with my family and we ended up in, uh, Shanghai and there's a huge Muji store there. Um, like a two story in Muji, I'm sure, you know, but it's a, this Japanese, I don't even know how to describe like housewares brand, but they do all kinds of other things like electronics. They have very famous creative director, Fukusawa that, I, I admire. Um, and I was at this store and looking at all the things and it just really hit me all of a sudden that someone designed everything that was there or people designed the things that were there. I just had never really thought about that before. And you could see, I mean, like it's mugs and pencils and couches and all these different things. And suddenly it was like Neo in the matrix. I could see like, Oh, someone decided that the diameter of this uh, you know, mug should be this and the material, it, you know, should be made out of, out of this material. And so, uh, I realized that that's something maybe I, I could do as a, as a job. And so I started going down that whole path. 
and uh, graduated from my biology degree, went out to Europe, back to where my parents uh, live, and and then ended up doing an internship at a very cool industrial design firm there called Flex in um, the Netherlands, where I, where I kind of wanted to test my assumption of whether I actually really wanted to become a designer or not. And, and, and the answer was yes, this was so much fun. I had a lot of fun. They let me do all kinds of different projects. They let me like design, uh, all kinds of different stuff. They're famous for doing all the, like a lot of Heineken and Grosch beer related stuff. They do all the, all the industrial design for, um, the, uh, TNT, which is the Dutch post, um, post office mm-hmm. They do work for, um, Tefal, which is like a, a cooking appliance, uh, brand in Europe. So they, they do a lot of different stuff and it was fun. Uh, I even got to work on a cow milking machine <laughs> design. So there was all kinds of different stuff. <laughs> it's a typical intern project. You know, we're going to have you do some social media posts and maybe get the coffee and then work on a cow milking machine. They were really great because, uh, they, they were, they weren't asking me to make coffee and stuff. They re- I really got to be part of the team and, and float around. And mostly I would, I would do almost, um, almost meaningless, uh, sketching and stuff like that. But there, there are a couple projects where I, I made a, I think a significant contribution even as an intern. <laughs> so in an industrial design firm, were you doing more graphic design focused things or were you creating forms for products? Creating or, forms. Yeah, cool. yeah. 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 And then I ended up, um, using some of that work to build my portfolio. And then I went and studied industrial design at art center, uh, college of design in Pasadena. And that's where I, I learned a lot more about industrial design, came up with a few product concepts that sort of got my name out there. I also met, um, Jesse Janae, who is my co-founder on Lumi. And we've been working basically ever since we like started our company while we were studying at art center. But, uh, yes, <laughs> uh, building things, you know, in the shop, making three dimensional, uh, you know, forms from, from sketches all the way to like CAD modeling and using all the different, uh, 3d prototyping, uh, tools that exist out there as well as just even just old school foam and wood and, you know, paper prototypes that you can make by hand. So this is all, I mean, for those of us listening who already know what Lumi is, this all makes sense. How you, uh, maybe got to this point between the, the prototyping and the, and the product stuff to where you are now, but tell us a little bit about what Lumi is and how that came to be. Well, I'm going to skip right to what we do today and then we could go back and see if it made any sense (laughs) (laughs) how we got from point A to, I don't know where we're at, at least H at this point. It has evolved a lot. Um, Yeah, Lumi is a, we make packaging for online brands. So uh, companies like MeUndies, Threadless, Cotton Bureau, a lot of e-commerce brands that you might be familiar with buy their packaging from us and uh, what we provide is, is sort of two things. One is, um, we have design tools that exist online that help people design, uh, products like, uh, just cardboard corrugated boxes, tape 
like tape that you might see like on an Amazon box, um, various types of envelopes. So we provide some design tools that help you create uh, your, you know, branded packaging that way. And then we also have tools that help the operations folks in those companies manage and reorder uh, all those supplies. Uh, because we focus mainly on fulfillment and e-commerce style packaging stuff that actually is used to ship direct to the consumer rather than, um, retail packaging, which is meant to sit on a shelf, you know, something that we might do in the future, but currently we're, we're mostly working on, uh, fulfillment packaging. So, so there's the, uh, there's the design side and then there's the operations side, which is managing all these different items, which typically would come from, a whole bunch of different vendors, but our, our work is to centralize all of that and, and provide an interface that allows you to reorder those, uh, very easily. So how did this all come to be? How do you connect knots between this, uh, internship doing industrial design to being a e-commerce packaging for brands like Threadless and MeUndies? Well, uh, it was a little circuitous. Um, what happened was while I was in school, I met Jesse, who's my co-founder, and she had been working for a couple years before that on a printing process. She had started while she was in high school, a t-shirt printing business. And one thing that she was trying to do was print uh, photography on cotton. And that actually turns out to be a very difficult uh, challenge because uh, the, the most common printing process for, for cotton is screen printing, mm -hmm. which is a half tone printing process. You can't really achieve like very good looking photography that way. And then there's digital printing or sublimation printing, which allows you to, um, print finer gradients, but usually that's not, uh, that doesn't work as well on cotton. It's mostly meant for polyester. So there's this weird little area of how do you print photography on cotton that was fascinating to her. And she went into researching like old patents and stuff from the fifties and found a formula, basically a, like a, a chemical that would allow, uh, printing on, on fabric, but more akin to photography, like darkroom photography or, um, cyanotype, which is a very kind of early, uh, photographic printing process mm -hmm. that is known for like blueprints. So, I, I mean, this is a long story, but essentially <laughs> we, we managed to develop a formula based on that, um, that is basically a liquid. It was called Inco sorry, it was called Inco dye. Um, it's a colorless liquid. And when you put it in the sun on fabric, it develops its color and then binds itself to the material. And so it allows you, if you use that in combination with a negative to print photography on fabric. So it was a very kind of quirky idea, but we brought it to Kickstarter back in 2009 when Kickstarter was like a brand new thing. It was only a few months old. And just me being a nerd, keeping track of things on the internet, I found out about Kickstarter and, um, and we decided to, to, to do a project about it. And it was one of the most successful Kickstarter projects at the time. It raised $13,000, <laughs> uh, which was huge at the time. Um, it was like, I don't know, I, I think it was like the fourth or fifth biggest Kickstarter campaign at the time. Obviously since then people have done million dollar projects, but 
um, it was very successful and it allowed us to kind of get um, a little bit of equipment and things that we needed to start making this die. And then from there, we built a whole product line and actually came back to Kickstarter a couple years later and raised almost, uh, I think, $268,000 for it. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and made a kit that anyone could use at home and then brought that kit to retail. Uh, so you can, you can still find it in a lot of art supply stores. It was also at Urban Outfitters, in Michaels and Joanne Fabrics here in the States and all over the world. We did collaborations. We did a huge project with Puma where they use the printing process uh, in like workshops all around the world, um, enabling their customers to print on uh, some various Puma swag that they were that they were promoting at the time. Like, so we did a lot of crazy things <laughs> based on this very quirky little printing process that we developed. But all along the way, you know, bringing this product to retail. Uh, learning how to warehouse things, building our own factory um, here in Los Angeles to manufacture the dye. We learned a whole lot about packaging. And unlike many of the other things that were happening uh, on the software side of the business, packaging was really hard. Uh, we, we were really lucky to, to, to start, the start the company basically at the time when all these amazing software tools were coming out. Kickstarter is one of them, but there's also you know, all the stuff that you might be familiar with, like Shopify and Stripe, mm -hmm. which allows you to process payments and, um, you know, MailChimp or all these different tools that help you manage the customer service side, the order processing, uh, the fulfillment of all your, your orders was becoming easier and easier thanks to these great software platforms and enabled us to get our business off the ground without having to hire a developer to build a whole payment processing solution for us. And these were all like pretty new things at the time, but packaging and a lot of the physical side of running a business was not at all, uh, figured out. And so we really needed to learn everything about how do you make a box? And you know, the, the, it sounds simple, but it's actually, there are quite technical challenges there, you know, learning how barcodes work, learning the different grades of corrugate, learning about flexographic printing and um, managing inventory and all that kind of stuff that, that wasn't nearly as easy. And we were learning all of that basically in order to supply one product, one type of dye that we were selling. So there were really no economies of scale. And all the expertise that we learned, the only way we were able to share it was really on a one... Uh, you know, on a, on a person by person basis with friends and people who were dealing with the same kind of problems. And we were all kind of sharing our, our tools and our tricks, but we realized that there was an opportunity for us to share that knowledge more broadly and build this platform that would allow other people to, um, to use the same infrastructure that we built for ourselves. Um, so that's where, that's where the modern incarnation of, of Lumi uh, came from. Wow. That's, um, very interesting to hear how much of that infrastructure and learnings came from the whole Inco Dye project and where you're just sort of left with, well, we learned all these things and had to do all this stuff. And then now what do we do with this? <laughs> yeah. And there's, um, we have uh, good friends at the company cards against humanity, which is 
you know, they're well known for uh, the, this game that they make, the card game. But um, they were just like us, a Kickstarter project that, you know, became successful and they had very similar challenges that they dealt with. And what they turned that into is this company called um, Black Box, which just launched last week. And it's, it's amazing the timing, you know, very similar to, to us with Lumi. They've uh, translated what they learned fulfilling. So Black Box is, is a fulfillment uh, and warehousing platform that allows you to send your inventory uh, to their warehouses and then manage your inventory and ship it to customers. So oh, very it's very nice. complementary to what we do. Um, but it came from the very, very much the same um, experience, which is, you know, you're, you're using all these great tools uh, to manage your business. But then there's, as soon as you hit the, uh, the physical aspect of providing a, a physical item to your customers, suddenly there's all kinds of challenges that, that occur. And, and the industry, the existing industry, is is very old school, very offline, still using faxes and all that kind of stuff that is just not <laughs> just not up to speed with the current technology. Well, speaking of using faxes, it strikes me that you have a very different likely day-to-day role as someone who's sitting at their desk doing, you know, quote unquote client work and all day, every day. So maybe you can fill us in a little bit about what a normal day looks like for you. How often are you, you know, helping out with support or are you in the back room working on fulfillment or are you overseeing printing or software or, you know, tell us a little bit about your role in particular. Well, my role at Lumi, <laughs> we're, we're still a small company. We're about 12 or 13 people right now. Um, so we all wear a lot of hats and ostensibly my, my role is, being the the head of uh, design and and the software platform that we that we create, so I would say that that is the the hat that I have on the most, trying to actually build <laughs> the tool, uh, design what it what the user experience is like, and then uh, actually manage the development, engineering, uh, and design effort behind that. So. That's the main thing that I do. But uh, in order to uh, stay informed and make the right decisions, I do try to, to like stay abreast of all the different things that are happening. So I do uh, work on the sales side as well, you know, helping you know, new customers get on board, especially some of our bigger customers need a little bit more attention. I try to stay up to speed on the customer service side and take a look at what issues people are running into with our, with our website or with the, pro- the products that we sell and make sure that uh, those get addressed in, in the development of the site as well as the operations side. You know, there's obviously a, a complex um, backend and infrastructure behind the actual manufacturing of everything. So the more we can um, optimize that on the software side, the, the leaner we can stay as an organization. So, um, so I, I basically bring that lens of design and engineering, uh, and try to go out of my little bubble and explore all the other sides of the, of the company, making sure that, um, that we, 
we build the thing that is helping the most people. So who do you find is typically like the first point of contact for you from the client side? So is it a designer who finds you guys and is reaching out or is it somebody on the operations side or fulfillment? Like it's usually one of those two. Yeah. Um, the, the, the scenario is usually, usually, uh, either it's a designer who, uh, is working either in house for the, for the company or they they have a client relationship with the company and the designer is basically tasked with, you know, either it's a full project of branding and packaging, or it's simply applying existing branding to a suite of, um, packaging. So they're coming to us and generally their questions are more, um, design related. So what, what is possible? What kind of printing processes do we offer? Can we do, you know, foil stamping? Can we, uh, you know, can we print the inside of a box as well as the outside of box? So there's, there's a lot of design questions that occur around that. Um, typically in most of the, the companies that we work with, the designer is not the, um, purchaser. Uh, so usually the person who ends up being the, the person who like pulls the trigger is someone on the operations side. Um, and there's a lot of different people, um, at that level who they, they, they have all kinds of different titles, but they're working on shipping or fulfillment or procurement or operations. And they're the people who actually place the order and then manage the inventory. And when that runs out, they, they order more. So sometimes we're working with people who are designing new brands and new packaging, uh, concepts. And sometimes we're working with people who already have packaging, but they want to get a better price on it. So we help them. Um, we we're oftentimes helping on that side because our prices are, are, uh, very competitive. So we often are helping the operations people streamline the costs and maybe find uh, creative ways of reducing their packaging costs. What's like the, the wackiest or the most, uh, aggressive request that you've gotten that you've been able to work with? So I, I was looking at, at your, your stuff on the Lumi site and it looks like a lot of it is very, you know, clean and stripped down kind of production details. But do you have anybody who's really like pushed the bounds or, or kind of caused you to create new products in the process? Uh, yeah, I recently, a couple come to mind. One is a company called primary.com. They do kids clothing. Uh, they're, they're pretty great. They do, they're sort of like, um, like Everlane, but for kids, I don't, I, that's like my best description. They do just direct online, um, sales and they ship everything out of a, what we call a poly mailer or a poly bag. It's like one of those plastic envelopes. And, um, they, they have this very colorful design on, uh, both sides of the, of the envelope. And up until then they had been printing at CMYK. Uh, now we're getting really nitty gritty, but <laughs> they, if you, if you look at the CMYK print on an envelope, it'll be made up of all these little dots of, you know, cyan, magenta, yellow, um, that, that make up the colors, but they wanted to get that to look a little bit more, um, refined. And so we helped them transfer over to a spot color process. And it was a nine color spot color, uh, um, envelope, which is oh, wow. quite challenging because, uh, the registration on that has to be very accurate. So that means nine different colors were mixed, um, exactly to the, the, the Pantone 
um, colors that they were looking for. And then it goes through this big machine that has these, I think it can go up to 12 bay, like there's 12 bays. So you can actually go even further than that, but it's quite sophisticated. And, you know, each color needs to be, uh, needs to be spot checked. And, and also that, then the registration needs to be really good. So that's one that comes to mind. Um, and another one that we're working on, I can't say the name of the company yet, but they are based out of Europe and they had a really fascinating box design, um, that I, I really love that, uh, enables the customer to return the product, um, after, you know, in case it doesn't fit, it's also a clothing company and mm -hmm. we just really love, uh, the creativity of, um, the box design there. It's, it's quite unusual compared to, you know, the, the standard type of box that you might get. And so, uh, you know, it involves interesting glue, uh, seams and things like that. So we're, we're working with them on a design for that. But, you know, something that fascinates me is a lot of the customers that we have are, they're purely e-commerce based. So they don't have the same constraints that traditional businesses might have of working with retailers. So they can really think about packaging in a different way because now packaging is not about, um, selling the customer at the point of sale in, in the retail store because the website performs that function. They, the, the customer goes to the website and sees and, and buys into the concept of the product or, uh, likes the brand based on what they see online. So the packaging is really just a vehicle to get it from the warehouse to your, to your apartment, to your house, um, to be delivered. And then it's the first tactile experience that you might have with the product. So as you're opening up that box, it, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't need to sell you, but it needs to make you feel like now you're in the universe of that company. Mm -hmm. And so once you start thinking that way, you can get really creative. And I think we're, we're still in the early days of what people might be, uh, coming up with in terms of, uh, interesting, inviting, uh, experiences in the physical world of, of packaging. You know, it's gotta be so interesting seeing all of these different designs come in and different ways to, you know, basically use the same products that you guys design or provide for other clients and to see the, how drastically different it looks from, from one brand to the next. What do you think is, is next for you guys? Do you see expanding into other elements of e-commerce or providing other parts to the process or where do you think the, the future is going for you guys? Well, we can certainly broaden the number of different products that we offer right now. We have around, uh, I think a couple dozen product categories. So, you know, like different styles of boxes and tapes and envelopes. And then we have, uh, several hundred different sizes, stock sizes across all of those different products. Plus we also do, uh, quite a bit of custom design or custom, um, custom sizing for, uh, for, for certain customers. So there, there's certainly plenty of room for us to go and explore other things. We have constantly people asking us, uh, for, uh, they're like a coffee shop and they're like, we want cups, we want coffee bags, we want, you know, all these different mm -hmm. things. And, um, you know, that, that would be a very interesting area to pursue 
right now we haven't gone down that path yet um, just because we want to make sure that we're really uh, solving the needs of our, our core customers, which are the more of these e-commerce brands. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, there's so much room for us to grow in that area that we don't feel the need to, to go down that path. But really what we're working on is just making the whole experience as seamless as possible. Um, from the design process, you know, it, we, we still have a long way to go because we're building basically a, a, a very a simplified version of Illustrator in the browser that allows you to design packaging and see it actually modeled sometimes in 3D on, on an item. So there's definitely a long way to go in terms of improving that side of things. Um, and then there's a long way to go in terms of improving the management of those items. Uh, you know, we, we only launched Lumi about a year and a half ago. So there, we're constantly um, getting new feature requests from customers, uh, especially as bigger and bigger, bigger companies become clients of ours. We're sometimes shipping literal tons of product. Like, you know, uh, we're, we're shipping truckloads of boxes for some of our clients. And that means that, um, you know, freight becomes a, a real challenge, um, in terms of how do you, how do you price it? How do you route it to the right place? How do you make sure that, um, you know, if they have multiple distribution warehouses that gets, um, uh, that is represented on, on the site and, and is, is something that you can actually do. So there's a lot of information, architecture and design that goes into um, figuring out how to how to create an interface for that. Because up until now, the interface for how you do that is you call your packaging guy on the phone and you say like, hey, can you send 200 over? Like, can you send two pallets over here and three pallets over there? And we just we don't <laughs> we're fine. We, we do that all the time. We work with people via via email, via phone. Uh, when we need to, but we want the website to be the source of truth about where your stuff is at. We want you to be able to go in there and see, you know, very precise tracking information, very precise uh, specifications about the product, the weight, the style of manufacturing, the Pantone colors that are associated with it, as opposed to having that all like, I don't know, different for every vendor that you work with. Um, So, so there's a lot, a lot of work still to be done on that area uh, in that whole, the whole world. But the exciting part is like, there's really nobody else doing it but like that. I'm sure people <laughs> will pop up and see that what we're doing is a good idea. But I, I really, in a weird way, I feel like it, it sounds really arrogant, but I feel like we're the best suited at solving this problem because we just really understand it so well. And we've been involved in so much of this manufacturing uh, I, I, it's funny because we're based in this area south of Los, Los Angeles called Vernon, where a lot of our manufacturing is based. And it's a, just a tiny little pocket that is purely industrial. I think that's the slogan of Vernon. It's like <laughs> purely industrial. And um, <laughs> it, there's like 200 residents of Vernon. Aside from that, it's all warehouses and factories. And I think the average age of people who work in Vernon has to be like at least mid 40s or 50s. And they're not at all like aware of what's going on with the web. Uh, and so our, our, our team is relatively young, but all of us have had at this point decades of experience with these processes like let's say Flexographic or, or Rotogravure that are 
pretty old school when you actually think about it. They, they've been around for like 50 plus years in their current incarnation. So uh, we're kind of using the best of, of those two uh, pools of knowledge, the understanding of manufacturing and the understanding of the web. And it's just very rare to find that combination uh, because it's not a sexy thing. You know, <laughs> boxes are <laughs> boxes are boring. I mean, it's like the most boring thing in the world when you actually think about it. There's a, there's, I was, there's an episode of The Simpsons uh, that I love where they, <laughs> they take the kids to a field trip and everybody, you know, all the kids are super excited to go on a field trip and they go to a box factory and it's literally like the worst thing ever. Even the teacher is like, <laughs> oh no. And, and, and it just, it just goes to show how, you know, cardboard boxes are all around us all the time, but we completely take that, that thing for granted, that item, that element that we interact with all the time. It's a boring thing because it's all around us all the time. And so, you know, we're a startup making the most boring thing in the world. Like we're not, we're not making self-driving cars or whatever the next crazy thing might be. We're just trying to make this manufacturing thing a lot easier for, for people who interact with it all the time. There's nothing sexier than uh, cardboard and logistics. Exactly. But that, <laughs> and, but that's what, that's our advantage. We're willing to do that work. <laughs> You're we're, making that work sexy. That's what's going on here. I guess so. I, it doesn't really matter to me that, that it's sexy or not. I think the main thing is, is it helping a lot of people? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that's the thing um, that I really enjoy personally. I enjoy designing the things that you don't, you never even think about. Like, I think like one of the greatest design product design, uh, ever, ever invented is like the, uh, the aluminum can that is like a genius design that, you know, nobody is like thinking about who invented the aluminum can. Mm -hmm. We're not like idolizing, you know, like, like people might idolize Johnny Ive or the new iPhone or whatever it is. Nobody's looking at the aluminum can and, and really pondering how amazing it is, but it is. It's an incredible, incredibly well-engineered uh, product that literally billions of people use that is completely recyclable, 100% recyclable, uh, you know, printable, strong, carries stuff all over the world uh, without a problem, holds a pressurized liquid. Like it has so many constraints that it has to... Uh, work against. And yet none of us think it's interesting. Nobody spends a second thinking about an aluminum can when they pick it up and drink out of it. As a fellow uh, podcast geek, you may already be familiar with this one, but um, a few weeks ago on the Gimlet show, surprisingly awesome, they actually talked about the history of cardboard and got into some like the political history and how it gained following and the difference between bored and corrugated and <laughs> it's really interesting stuff. If you haven't heard that yet. Oh man. I ha- no, I, I need to look into that. I know the podcast. We'll have to link to that show in the show notes too. Oh yeah. That'd be great. Maybe shifting gears a little bit. Um, you know, one of my favorite questions to ask everyone on the show is what's the thing that you feel like you're most obsessed with right now? Uh, right now, 
I don't know. I'm, I'm such a curious person. I, I keep tabs on like hundreds of different things. Like some of the things are, are, are super specific and others are just general trends that I'm thinking about. Um, one thing that I'm, I'm really fascinated about is comedy. I don't, it, <laughs> this might be a weird curveball, but I think that I took some improv classes in LA <laughs> here where it's like, I think everybody in Los Angeles has taken improv classes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I thought it would be a fun experience, but I'm into comedy podcasts and, and, and what I've discovered is I think com comedians and designers are actually like very similar types of people. We're, we're always out there like looking for problems mm -hmm. and looking at things and saying, Oh, that's so silly that we do things that way. Except comedians get up on stage and say and point that out and say boy our society is stupid and then designers are involved in maybe trying to fix that somehow so that's something that I'm interested in I don't know I, I mean I, I could go into a million different areas cooking I love cooking I um I am interested in minimalistic lifestyles my co-founder lives in an airstream and I, I don't know if I could do that yet, mm. but, um, but I, I'm fascinated with how do you reduce the number of things that you, that you use, um, how many objects that you need to own. I'm yeah. fascinated with filmmaking. I really would love to make more movies. <laughs> I've made a couple little things here and there, but I would love to do more of that. Um, and then there's, you know, simple things that every designer is into like pens and I don't know notebooks and stuff like that, that I geek out about or cameras and, and that kind of stuff. So when you talk about the, the comedian thing and how they th see things that are ridiculous and maybe that's similar to how we see, are there, are there things that you see out there that drive you crazy right now? Are there things that you look at, uh, maybe specifically in the packaging world or just maybe more broadly in the startup or software or design world that kind of drive you nuts? Hmm. I, I, I don't know where to take that because I feel like I could go in, in two very different directions. One is like existential almost. <laughs> and, we, and I feel like uh, I just think a lot about um, the fact that nobody seems to address the fact that we're like uh, a speck of dust in space. <laughs> and like some people think about it, but like I'm a huge fan of Carl Sagan and like the pale blue dot thing. And, and that has like totally informed my perspective on design. Like I started off thinking that I would be, here's how I compare it. I think a lot of design these days, something that frustrates me with it is it's very good at problem solving, but not very good at problem finding. Mm. And that a lot of design designers get, it's fun to solve a problem, to solve a problem. It is fun to do that uh, for a certain type of person. If your brain is wired that way, it's like solving a puzzle. You know, you, you get into the intricacies of how does this whole thing fit together? But that is kind of a trap that you can get stuck into. And then when you see people complain about, you know, do we need another app that helps you do this? Or do we need another you know, whatever it is, do we need another X? Um, that's a, that's an actual problem, I think. Uh, and I kind of moved away from that as an industrial designer. Uh, you know, I'm fascinated with 
designing chairs and utensils and electronics, but do we need another one of those is a question that I always ask myself. But if you can get good at problem finding, then maybe you can get involved in some things that maybe are more meaningful. That, and that's something that we don't really teach in design school. We don't teach people to go look for good problems. We just say like, hey, you know, take this toaster and redesign it, make it different or better, or more suited <laughs> to an audience. And that seems like not, I don't know, that, that, that doesn't seem like the right approach. And problem finding is not a, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe your listeners will tell me they had a great class in problem finding or, or found a way to uh, learn that. But it's a hard skill to learn that I don't think we're teaching. Well, for anybody who's listening, um, I'd love to see that conversation continue over social media. So tweet at obsessed show and let us know where you fall on this whole problem solving versus problem finding continuum. And, and if you've got experience or you found in class that your, uh, instructors encouraged you to, to learn about that, which is maybe a good segue to, um, you know, with, with your team, as you're growing and building this, this team at Lumi, what's your favorite piece of advice to pass along to them? Or maybe if you don't have one of those, what's, what's the best piece of advice you feel like you've received in the design world? I think expectations are really important. Basically managing expectations is always where people get uh, disappointed or overly excited. And what I've learned, it's weird because aside from a couple internships that I had, I've never had a real job. <laughs> I, I started my company <laughs> straight out of school and I've, it's like I've had no jobs and I've had every job because I'm, I'm still to this day, I feel like I'm the janitor at Lumi because I, I'm, I'm, you know, picking up stuff off the ground and, and, you know, cleaning the toilets sometimes. Like I, I literally feel like I've had every, every job and yet no job. Um, and so I've had to sort of learn how to hire people, how to fire people, how to work with people, manage people, um, interact with, uh, clients and, and, and customers and suppliers. And so you start to learn all those different things. And I found over the years that when I first started, I was always protective of, um, information. I was always protective of my ideas. I didn't, I didn't want to like overly share my ideas because I thought maybe they were really good and someone, someone might steal it. Or I would try to overstate, uh, what we were doing and try to make it sound, uh, more exciting than it was because I was trying to really sell someone on something or, um, or, you know, if I was interviewing someone for a job, I would, I would talk too much. I would, I would try to make us sound, uh, great. And <laughs> now I do the opposite. When I interview someone <laughs> for a job, I'm like, here's all the reasons you shouldn't work at Lumi. Like I, I, I just tell them right up, up front, you know, what, what we, we work out of a warehouse, you know, air conditioning is probably going to suck in the summer. Like there's going to be these problems, uh, that you're going to run into. And then I, and then I just watch them deal with it and see, uh, if they're willing to like get on board with that and, and be someone who, who wants to be involved in that or not. And, and so 
just being completely transparent and honest about who you are and what you're trying to do. If it turns someone off right away, which is always the fear, uh, Mm -hmm. well, actually maybe that's not so bad because then you don't waste six months of your life, uh, you know, working up to the moment where they realize what was true all along and then decide, never mind, this is not actually the place for me or, you know, or you, uh, realize actually they're not right for what I'm trying to do. And I'm talking about hiring people, but it could be at every level, whether it's clients or, or suppliers or, or, or whoever you might be interacting with in your job. Yeah. I think that's a philosophy that applies a lot of times to, uh, to sales in particular, you know, instead of wasting one another's time, like if it's a no, let's figure that out really quickly. And if it's a yes or a maybe, then we can talk about it some more. And I think doing that from a relational standpoint is a great, great suggestion as well. Yeah. Trying to please people too much. I think that's the thing that you can get into trouble. I'm not saying you shouldn't do a good job once you've um, decided to engage with someone, but being afraid to disappoint someone and, and not telling the, the, the truth sounds kind of like objectively, like morally wrong, but, mm-hmm. um, but simply being willing to share the, you know, the, the, the reality of what you're trying to do always works so much better because there's less disappointment. There's, there are, there are expectations, the expectations don't get out of hand. What do you think you'll be doing 10 years from now? I don't know. I think I saw this great, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to send this to you so that the listeners can uh, look at it. There's an image of, uh, Picasso. It's three self portraits that he did throughout his life. And the first one is at age like 20 and it's like a beautiful, I don't know, like Raphael style, uh, mm. very accurate painting of himself. And then <laughs> the last one is when he's 90 and it literally looks like, I mean, you can't even process the shapes. It, it, it's so trippy and like cubist <laughs> to the like in, insane degree. And then the one in the middle is like somewhere halfway between the two. And that's how I feel like my life is. I feel like I started trying to do something and it's just getting more and more insane and inside out the, the, the further I go. And so I feel like I really, I, I hope this is, I hope I get to live to like as, as old as Picasso was like 80 or 90 or whatever. And I think that's when I'll be at the peak level of like complete, completely freeing myself of, of any, um, you know, any limitations that I, that, that my mind puts on, on myself. So, uh, I don't know exactly in 10 years, it'll be, you know, <laughs> I can, I can see the, where I'm at in 90, at like at age 90, better than I can see where I'm at in, in, in 10 years. I think it's just gradually slightly more insane. There's, there's definitely something to that. I think coming back to what you were saying about, you know, honesty, I feel like, you know, at least the way history remembers Picasso, that, that 90 year old ultra cubist thing is kind of what we see as the most, the most honest view of him. So it's interesting that he kind of grew in that direction. It was easier for him to be honest with himself, even through a self-portrait. 
later in life as opposed to when you when you sort of stereotypically say you know people are young and full of energy and everything else but maybe that's when he was still hiding a little bit who he was if gonna get really existential here yeah i i'm fascinated with that um no it's great it's great i feel like everybody should get more uh crazy (laughs) i don't know what the i'm not sure how to describe it but just like completely let go of inhibitions in the way you design things the other day um this uh, i'm gonna forget her name but she's the lady who runs this great program called app camp for girls was uh, she she helps um kids uh, girls i think between the ages of like seven to twelve and they design apps. They go to this like camp and they design apps. And she was showing some of the results of the work. And one of them was this app that was like a quiz app where you answer questions. And each page of the quiz was designed with completely different background, completely different fonts and typography, um, different colors and buttons and stuff. And as you would go through the quiz, I mean, literally every two seconds, you're you're shown an interface that looks completely different from the one that you just looked at before. And it goes completely against every principle that any, you know, designer would ever follow. But yet it blew my mind. I was like looking at this and these were kids have never done UI design before. And I was like, gosh, I really need to open my mind a little bit more. I really need to get back to that. I mean, it goes contrary to what you just said about like, I think that was the quote from Picasso. He, he said it took him 90 years to uh, to learn how to draw like a, like a child or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, you, you start off with no inhibitions and somehow in the span of ages like 10 to 20, you build all these, these uh, rules. There's all these rules that get created in your mind and everybody tells you what the rules are and then you spend the rest of your life trying to like break all those rules. Um, I think one of the big rules that I'm trying to break is what is a career supposed to be? Um, because I, I, I want to do architecture. I want to make a, I want to make a movie. I want to, I want to write a comic book (laughs) and I, I just, I just, I don't know if any of them will be good, but I am, I'm interested in doing all of those different things. I want to make a building and a house and, and a movie. And, and, and I know that that's probably not the best, um, way to, you know, if you were planning out your career, you should probably stick, you know, find what you're good at, stick with it and, and build on that. But, um, that's not what I'm, that's not the only thing that I'm interested in doing. I'm interested in all those other things. And I think, you know, when I look at where I'm at in 10 years, I hope I'll find a way to like, you know, break those rules that somehow I've created for myself. Love it. Love the, uh, the rule breaking. I've spent most of my adult life living under the principle that the rules just don't apply to me so I can, (laughs) I can do whatever I want. I think it, I mean, it's a good way to go. I obviously we live in a society where there's some rules that we should probably abide by, but for the most part, a lot of them probably don't make a whole lot of sense. Right. Well, um, maybe before we get going here, um, we were talking a little bit at the top of the show that, um, you were worried you might leave a few out. So let's touch on, um, who your design heroes are. 
Well, I think actually this is now I get to just talk about, I'll, I'll only talk about a couple because I think that they're very relevant to what I just said. The one that I always say is, are the Eames because mm-hmm. I actually think they were able to do this. Um, a whole part of their, their career was making videos and, and some of them are really great. Um, if you, I don't know, have you had a chance to listen to or see any of their videos? Oh yeah. It's really, really amazing considering probably the, the DIY technology that was or wasn't available <laughs> at the time. The powers of 10 is the famous one that you can find easily. Mm-hmm. But if you have a chance, um, go, some libraries carry them. Like there's a, there was a collection that existed on DVDs of all the original Eames, um, little movies they made. And I think they made like a couple dozen or so, and they're all really great. Uh, and they're in all different kinds of styles. Some of them are cartoons. Some of them are, you know, purely documentary style. Some of them are stories. Some of them are abstract. And then obviously they made furniture and they, you know, and they had a, a design studio where they did branding and they did all this different st- kind of stuff and they made fabrics and they made, um, so I, I love that because they applied a consistent creative, uh, technique, but across all different types of media. So the, I always, I just, I love what they do. And in every medium that they worked in, I love their work. Uh, so I look up to them quite a bit. I mean, I can, you know, there's, there's people like Dieter Rams and, uh, like Paul Rand and, and people like that, that, you know, come to mind that are just kind of obvious ones. Uh, one that is not, I don't know if I could say that he's a design hero, but there's this guy, um, Alejandro Yodorovsky. Do you know who that is? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. Well, if, if you're someone who <laughs> is listening to this podcast, <laughs> if you're a creative person, you have <laughs> to watch this documentary called Yodorovsky's Dune, uh, which is, I think it's become my favorite movie. I'm, I, I watch it all the time. Uh, it's a documentary about this, movie director, painter, surrealist, writer, guy who uh, was famous uh, throughout the... He's still alive and actually just did a Kickstarter campaign, which is pretty funny. He's, I think he's 80 or 90 <laughs> years old. And he, like you'll get... like the, That guy is a, re- a real hero of mine. He started you know, in the making um, surrealist movies. I don't remember what decade that might've been, I guess the, maybe the fifties, um, and was tapped or I guess he decided to make a movie adaptation of the book Dune, the sci-fi book Dune, which is kind of one of the most popular sci-fi books. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this documentary is the story of how he went about making that movie and ultimately why it never got made. It's, it's kind of known as like the, one of the greatest never finished films. And it's incredible because he had so many amazing people involved. Um, the music was going to be done by Pink Floyd and, um, Mick Jagger was going to play one of the characters like that. And he, the storyboard was all done by this, um, French comic book artist called Mobius, who's an incredibly well-known sci-fi comic book artist. Um, so he just was able to bring this team of talents together that it was just incredible. And then it all unwound in a very dramatic way. Um, but what it makes me feel every time I watch it is just how intense 
he thinks how intensely he he thinks about everything. It, the, one of the things he says at the very beginning of the of the film was that you know this was going to come out in the seventies and you know everyone was on LSD or whatever, but he wanted the movie to be a prophet. He wanted to be he wanted the movie to feel like you were on drugs. Like he wanted the movie to be LSD. And I just <laughs> I I thought about that. I was like, is there anything in my life that I feel so passionately about? Am I trying to make, I mean, I don't think that that's necessarily a great design goal to make, you know, uh, my interface for buying packaging feel like LSD, but, um, it is an interesting, challenging notion that you should do things out of passion. And he really represents that. So there's something, I think it's more about a way of life that informs the way I look at design, but certainly he's an inspiration. I don't know. There's a whole bunch of people. I, I noted, I jotted down cause you sent me this question earlier. Teenage engineering. I love their work. If you're into industrial design and music, um, related, uh, products, they're very interesting. I think they do really, really great work. Um, I put Spike Jones on there too, uh, who, just came out with this amazing music video for a Kenzo perfume. I had been a fan of his music videos for a long time, but he also directed the movie Her. And the movie mm-hmm. Her has a ton of incredible design ideas in it. it you know, I, I think about that movie a lot in terms of humanist design and where things might go in the future. Um, so my inspirations for design are kind of weird and all over the place. Love it. Well, um, I have a feeling that after I listen to a few more of your uh, archives <laughs> on your show, that we might have to jump back on here for episode two because I think we could, especially get into the uh, the existential stuff and get get a lot deeper for conversation too. So, um, but before I let you go, make sure and tell all of our listeners where they can track you down online and how to find Lumi and how to check out more about what you guys are up to. Sure. Lumi is just lumi.com, L-U-M-I.com. And we're at Lumi on all the things, Twitter, Instagram, um, Facebook. And then we do a lot of events uh, here in Los Angeles. So if you're in LA, come and say hi. We do uh, interviews with various entrepreneurs and designers, and that happens at least once a month. So keep an eye on that. And then uh, and obviously, if you're doing package design, feel free to email me. I'm Stefan, first name at Lumi.com, S-C-E-P-H-A-N at Lumi.com. So if you have a project and you're curious about working with us, uh, you know, feel free to just email me directly or go to our website and explore what's on there. And then personally, I'm at Kipano, K-E-P-A-N-O, uh, on all the, all the things. So if you need more existential inspiration <laughs> i'm tweeting about that or i don't know uh check it out and see if you're interested i'm i'm around on on all the social networks awesome well Stefan, it's been a blast chatting with you and uh thank you for hanging out with us and thank you for being obsessed with design all right guys that is episode number 38 in the books for all of today's notes please visit obsessedshow.com and head over to iTunes and make sure to hit that subscribe button. We'd also love to get a review and a rating while you're at it to help others find the show. 
Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon, a branding agency located on the lucky 13th floor of Circle Tower in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Head on over to Obsessed with Design at obsessedshow.com and check out Miles Herndon at milesherndon.com. Our intro music is Matchbox Girl by Cassie Joe, and our show is always edited by Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Head on over to brassybroad.com to learn more about her. Be sure and tweet at Obsessed Show and tell us who you'd like to hear from next, and we'll catch you next time.